This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. So, Jim, it feels like it's getting kind of lonely in the Senate these days. It is. Well, it's getting lonely both because all the senators who are there, the Democrats, are running for president and... um, No one wants to run for any of the available seats this cycle. It's getting sad. Slate's Jim Newell says the U.S. Senate has got this problem. It's not doing anything. You know, it's basically just a a nominations factory. I think it was Senator Chris Murphy, a Democrat, called it this week a lunch club, basically, because they have, you know, their caucus lunches three days a week, and then they go and vote on a couple of nominations, then they get out of there. <laughs> That's super depressing. Yeah, and but you know what? Mitch McConnell is completely fine with that, too. He's ha- like, he's he's post-legislation, you know? He's he just processing nominations and changing the courts, and he, he thinks it's working just great. I mean, you wrote in your article that the Senate is where fun goes to die. Yes. I've never been more confident in a statement in my life, so... <laughs> I mean, isn't this a place you go to work every day? Um, less and less because I don't want all of my my fun to die, you know. <laughs> Jim isn't alone here. The people he covers are feeling this way too. Democrats especially, they've been struggling to convince their star politicians to run for Senate. It's a tough sell. I don't think it quite has the appeal of this great body anymore. I mean, if the opportunity is there for the taking and there's not a whole lot of risk involved, then someone will, sure, they'll launch a Senate run. But if there's any risk involved, you know, and if you might be giving up a House career where you've built up some seniority or you want to throw your hat into the into the presidential contest, you might as well, just because it's it's not, you know, what are you going to do in the Senate? Today on the show... With all the breathless enthusiasm for the presidential race, no one seems very interested in the Senate. Jim Newell says that has big implications for whoever does land in the White House. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When I was getting ready to do this story, I 
I went around looking for what people were saying, people who clearly Democratic leadership wanted to run for the Senate and who had turned it down. And when you read their quotes, it really sounds like the Democrats are like Marie condoing themselves out of the Senate. Like the quotes are, OK, Stacey Abrams from Georgia. She's like, well, you have to want to do the job. I don't want to do the job. You look at John Hickenlooper from Colorado. He says, you know, senators don't build teams. I'm not sure that's my thing. I'm a doer. That's what gives me joy. <laughs> <laughs> OK. And like Steve Bullock from Montana I just wouldn't enjoy it. So I ruled it out. It's like literally they're just they're touching the Senate possibility and they're like, it doesn't spark joy. Bye. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an interesting candor about, you know, the acknowledging how pathetic the Senate has become, you know, unless they completely blew up all the rules that, that blocked them from considering so much legislation. I, th- I think some of those are also a little, you know, self-serving, too, because they want to run for president. Like, you know, I wasn't born to be part of a Senate team. I was born to lead. That's why I should be elected president. You know, when Steve Bullock's presidential campaign flames out, as it presumably will, and he's looking for a new job, maybe he'll change his mind about the Senate a little bit. And the the best pitch for, you know, recruiting Democrats to the Senate is we have to stop Mitch McConnell, like you know, because he's just transforming the courts and he is preventing any progressive legislation from even having a chance, you know, even a, a compromise version of it or anything, he's just not even going to consider it. That's a very strong pitch for the Senate. But, um, you know, it's not necessarily very rewarding work, given how broken it is. Well, let's go through the races, you know, one by one. Like, where are the states where Democrats have their eyes on them and are thinking of candidates to jump in? Like, there's Georgia, for instance, where we saw Stacey Abrams have an unsuccessful bid for governor, but lots of people think, wow, she'd make a really interesting senator. She said no. It's Republican David Perdue whose seat is up, right? Yes. So tell me about that race. Why why do Democrats think he's vulnerable? Well, Georgia is one of the states, you know, just because of a lot of the, the growth in population and a lot of people moving to the Atlanta metro area, it's changing demographically. I think in 2018, given how close Stacey Abrams got, and also there are a couple of House races, Democrats, they flipped one suburban Atlanta seat and they almost flipped another. So it's sort of this this prophecy of Georgia turning blue. 2018 showed that it's pretty close. You know, on top of that, David Perdue is a very Trumpy senator. He, he is really pretty hardline in immigration. So he, he can be a bit polarizing in his state. So that's where they think the opportunity is. It's just a question of, is Georgia all the way there yet? Is it ready to flip to blue? Or is it still, you know, a lean Republican state where the president's going to get his base out? David Perdue is probably going to run a couple points ahead of Trump in the state. So it, there's still a lot of risk involved. And if you're Stacey Abrams, do you want to have two consecutive losses on your record, especially when you don't even really want to do the Senate job? Texas is a little bit of the same story. Like you have Republican John Cornyn, who's up. He's not quite as Trumpy, is my understanding. But you do have Beto, who is this superstar, you know, ran for Senate, didn't get it and, you know, is sort of looking at the same thing. Like, do I want to go for this? And how how far has the state come towards flipping blue? Yeah, I mean, that's another one where Texas for 10 or 20 years, people have been saying it's going to turn blue just because, again, of transplants from other states and immigration changing the, the demographics of the state. But people didn't really think it would happen until 
2018 when, you know, Democrats flipped a couple of House seats again. Beto got close. Granted, he was running against Ted Cruz, who is, you know, in Texas, the like the least favorite Republican senator there is. Yeah, he's like a better person to fight against. Yeah, yeah. He makes for a very good foil. And, you know, Beto, I, I think, got a lot of energy going. You know, John Cornyn, I think if you just sort of railed against John Cornyn, you wouldn't sort of get people so viscerally angry as they might with Ted Cruz. Um, and Cornyn is, is pretty prepared for a challenge. You know, he's not sleeping on this or anything. So it would be really difficult to to knock him off. I think, again, if, you, if you're Beto, do you want to lose to Ted Cruz and then probably, or I won't say probably, but quite possibly lose to John Cornyn as well? And then where do you go from there in your career? Especially when you had all that energy in, in your campaign and you, you sort of have to strike while the iron's hot if you do want to be president. Hmm. And then you have Colorado and Montana. In Colorado, you've got Cory Gardner. And in Montana, you have Steve Daines. And you have these two can- potential candidates. You have John Hickenlooper and Steve Bullock, who are both running for president, right? Right. Why? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I do theoretically know why, because they, they think it's wide open. They think that Joe Biden, you know, who's sort of occupying whatever moderate lane they're, they're looking at. In case that white guy goes down, like, here's another white guy yeah, to replace yeah. him. Like, when, once the giant white moderate in the room collapses, you know, then it's going to be a free for all. And for some reason, people will land on uh, John Hickenlooper, who they don't even know, or, you know, or Steve <laughs> Book. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's I don't really see what the rationale is other than a sort of uh, egotistical politician looking around the room and, and sizing up the competition and thinking that, oh, well, if these people are in, then I might as well be in because I'm better than them. It, it just never seems to end. I mean, and each one seems to get more absurd than the next one. I mean, one bright spot here is Mark Kelly, who is the astronaut husband of Gabby Giffords. He's mm-hmm. running in, in Arizona, right? Yes. So he's been successfully recruited. Is that yes. like a good news story for Democrats? Yeah, it is a good. I mean, it, and again, you have to look at the circumstances like Arizona is a little bit far ahead in its political transition than uh, Georgia or Texas. Kristen Cinema just won the Senate race there last year, and she beat Martha McSally, who was then appointed to the other vacant seat, which was John McCain's seat. So she has to run a special election now. So if you're Mark Kelly and you know that Martha McSally can be beat because she was literally just beat. There's not much risk to it. So I could see why he would accept that invitation, as it were. But the knives came out for him, like as soon as he announced, right? Oh, yeah. They're out. I mean, they'll, and they'll be out the whole time, which shows how uh, worried Republicans are about that one. Tell me what you saw. Like, how, what was the Republican response to him? Oh, well, they called him, you know, Chuck Schumer's handpicked crony. I mean, they, which they call every single person who's recruited, you know, Chuck Schumer's handpicked candidate who wants to do the the evil bidding of New York and uh, San Francisco. And then, you know, when Chuck Schumer fails to recruit a candidate, then they say Chuck Schumer's weak. No one listens to him. You know, so I, I, I guess they've done some polling that shows Chuck Schumer, you know, is is a a villain in Republican circles, which makes sense. You talk about Chuck Schumer, which raises this issue of how this all works. Can you tell me about that for someone who doesn't know how the Senate works and how you get an invite to run for Senate, basically, or how the money rolls out to you? You talked about Chuck Schumer. I mean, what's his role here? Well, I mean, officially, the the recruitment process is run through the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, uh, which this year is is led by Catherine uh, Cortez Masto, who's a senator from Nevada. 
But Schumer's also, you know, always involved in all of this stuff, too, just like on the Republican side, you know, Mitch McConnell is, is involved as well. So, I mean, there's, it's not like any formal process. It's just Chuck Schumer gets an idea in his head of who would be a good candidate. And then he personally either, you know, goes to meet someone or calls someone and tries to tr- tries to persuade them to get into the race. So he's like the social chair for the Senate. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he thinks he's I mean, Chuck Schumer thinks he has the most brilliant political mind in of all time. Um, and he really likes getting involved in in uh, everything. So, yeah, he's definitely going to see who meets his criteria as a quality candidate and then try to use, you know, whatever sway he has to try to bring them in. What's he looking for in a candidate? I think he's looking for, well, it depends on the state, you know, but his recruits, well, I guess Mark Kelly, you know, he has obviously an inspiring personal story, but, you know, he's also pretty centrist in a, in a state that is not exactly a blue state quite yet. But in Georgia, Stacey Abrams is not a centrist. So he's he's just looking for someone who, if, if you don't have sort of middle of the road politics for a state like that, you look at it, you know, enthusiasm factors and, and national attention and all of that. I think Schumer's critics would say that he looks too often for the centrist, lame, boring person, which he's had a couple of duds who have done that. Evan Bayh in Indiana a few years ago, Schumer recruited him to run for his old Senate seat again. And people in Indiana decided, wait, we don't actually want this guy who left office to become a lobbyist with like four different lobbying jobs to represent us. So his name recognition didn't really help there. Or, or um, Phil Bredesen in Tennessee last year, former governor who was popular, but he was popular like 10 years ago and, you know, no one really cares anymore. And now it's a very red state. So that didn't really work. Can I ask a question? Are Republicans having the same problem? A little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, they don't have a ton of opportunities this time. They have a really clear one in Alabama where Doug Jones is up for re-election. Alabama is like the most Republican state in the country. Right. And Doug Jones, of course, was, you know, he won this special election and it was a huge surprise. Right. And and so when you're expected to win a seat, then you sort of have the opposite problem, which is that there's too much enthusiasm to get into the race. So you might have a very divisive primary. So, you know, they're managing that in Alabama. They're managing that in Kansas, where Chris Kobach, who just lost the governor's race, is looking at running for Senate. Um, And then some sort of very marginal chance that they have in like Michigan or New Hampshire uh, Republicans. They haven't quite landed their recruit yet. So how long does Senate leadership have to get this done? Oh, they have plenty of time. Most filing deadlines aren't until early next year. So could it just be that people are just taking their time? They're slow walking it? Some, but their like go-to number one choices have rejected it, at least in a lot of them on the Democratic side. And that's what this is. It doesn't mean that they can't find someone else and maybe that someone surprises them. Like like Cory Gardner in 2014 was not Republicans' number one choice. He was, hmm. I think, their number three or four choice. And he ended up winning that race. And same with uh, Joni Ernst in Iowa. So, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't assume that Democrats are doomed because they haven't gotten Stacey Abrams or... Um, you know, these boring governors are running for president instead. Someone could just emerge out of the blue. And maybe maybe that's the way it's supposed to work. You know, just don't have someone handpicked from D.C. and let people who are actually enthusiastic go in and make their case. But let's look at the bigger picture here, because earlier in this interview, you talked about the fact that like nothing really gets done unless there's one party in control of executive and legislative And so it it just makes me wonder 
if there are all these people who are saying no to running for Senate, if the Senate just doesn't appeal to them, it's, it seems too hard, I don't get to be in charge soon enough, whatever their reason, what does that mean about this 2020 election? Because even if a Democrat runs away with it, I mean, if you're a Democrat, <laughs> are you going to be able to get anything done if you don't also have a stronger Senate? I guess the the theory is that if a Democrat wins comfortably over Trump, then hopefully there'd be enough coattails there to bring in a Democratic Senate majority. I'm not at all sold on that theory yet, just because I I don't know. I think the elections can be very close. And I, I think it just seems like before times logic, you know, where it's like, oh, yeah, so everyone will just come around as long as we win this one. Yeah, you know, I don't. I'm trying to think of the last time, though, there would have been that configuration for an incoming president where um, new president and you hold the House, but not the Senate. It's usually the case that at least for the first couple of years, you bring, you know, your party with you. And I, I think it would really force the question of what is the Senate supposed to be? You know, it's a place that's in transition right now because it's supposed to operate on consensus. The House passes all of this crazy stuff and then the Senate figures out what, act, what there's actually consensus behind and then passes that. But that has broken down now completely in this sort of very polarized era. So if you have a new president come in and they can't get any of their agenda through because of Mitch McConnell, I don't know, I think it's going to really make people question our system of government and the way it's set up. So I, I think, you know, that would really, that would almost be a crisis point if if we got to that situation and we just saw a complete jamming for a first-term president. I don't know what to do about it. I mean, rewrite the con I'll rewrite the Constitution if anyone asks me, you know, but I don't know. <laughs> Jim Newell, here with the hard truths, as always. <laughs> thank you so much. Yep, thank you. Jim Newell is Slate's guy in Washington. And that's the show. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Anna Martin. We had special help today from Samantha Lee. I know you listen to this show every day, but what if you could see it? June 8th, New York City, you can do just that. What Next is going to have our first live show. It's part of Slate Day. You can go get tickets at slate.com slash slate day 2019. I'm going to be interviewing comedian Wyatt Sinak and New York City public advocate Jumani Williams. Live, on stage, anything could happen. Trust me, you're going to want to be there. All right, talk to you tomorrow. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.